This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At MidwayUSA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. travel, to experience, and learn. That is to live. Tenzing Norgay. Now, is there a defining hiker trash moment, either on the AT or on a, a later trail, where you're like, oh yeah, that, that uh, kind of defined me as hiker trash? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Let's see. At the end of the John Muir Trail, I was like, I knew I had to get on a plane, and I wasn't going to have time to do laundry, so I paid my $5 for a shower in Yosemite. And I took my hiking clothes in there, desperately trying to like get them clean enough for me to wear them on the plane. But actually, due to a series of unfortunate events, I ended up being able to do laundry, so it was fine. But I was like, I cannot, I just can't get on a plane smelling like this, I can't do it. So I was like, I'd rather have to wear these clothes like wet <laughs> than have them smell the way that they do. I'm Doc, and this is Hacker Trash Radio. Hey, is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. 
I think it's on now. <clears throat> Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week, Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck. We are stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear on this episode of Hiker Trash Radio. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping and returns over $40. Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirtbags, hiker trash, and of course, good smelling day hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, help us out. Just take a, just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what we're doing, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest, a through hiker with an incredible comeback story. It is my pleasure to welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, Audrey Payne. How's it going, Audrey? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. And I have to say that you have the perfect last name for a through hiker. <laughs> I do. I really do. It was meant to be. Yeah, that's right. Meant to be. Meant to be. All right. Hey, Audrey, do you have a trail name? Have you come across a trail name in your time on the trail? I do. It's Glow Stick. And what is the story behind Glow Stick? When I went out to hike the AT, it was a time in my life where I was really into going to festivals of all kinds, music, wine, food, whatever. And when I started the AT, I had not opened up my tent for several months since the last time I had been at a festival. And so when I opened up my tent on Springer Mountain, inside was a bright yellow glowing glow stick, like it must have been in there since this festival and it hadn't been cracked previously. So it cracked the first day on the AT. And then I also, I got off of the AT for a couple of weekends, one for the Bonnaroo Music Festival and one for the Finger Lakes Wine Festival in New York. My friends thought it appropriate to name me Glowstick. Glowstick makes sense. And that's amazing. It was still ready to go when you open up your tent. How long do you think it had been in there? <laughs> yes. Oh, for at least six months. <laughs> now, how many festivals have you been to? And are they all kinds of different festivals? Is it, do you do EDM oh, I, or? I couldn't count. I used to love them. I feel like I've gotten a lot more tame and boring since COVID and just getting older. But I used to just love going to see live music and trying new wines and beers. And so I, I used to be very social and out there in the world. I'm Like I said, I'm a little more boring now, but back in the day, I loved it. Aren't we all just a little bit more boring these days? We've been through a lot the last <laughs> few years, so. For sure. Yes, and where are you calling in from tonight? 
Boulder, Colorado, which is where I live. It's a wonderful city. I highly recommend visiting it if you never have. Not a, bla- a bad place to live. Talk about the capital of adventure. Oh my gosh, I got so lucky. I So I actually moved here after I hiked the AT. So I've been here for almost five years. And at the time I was really aiming for Denver. I've been living in Washington, DC, and I had spent a little bit of time looking around, figuring out where I wanted to live next. And so I was aiming for Denver just because I was like, oh, Colorado seems great. That's a big city with a lot of jobs. And so after the AT, I applied for a bunch of jobs out in Colorado, 99% of them in Denver. One, One job in Boulder that I applied to, that's the one I got. And now I'm so obsessed with Boulder. I love it here so much. I hate going into Denver. So it worked out. It all worked out. You aimed for Denver and you landed in Boulder. So not bad. All right. Hey, Glowstick. I'm lucky. I feel like it was meant to be. Absolutely. Glowstick, have you had a chance to listen to the podcast before? Do you know what you're getting yourself into? Heck yes. I love this podcast. It's one of my favorites. So yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, uh, I want to make sure that as a regular listener that we do have a, an, a segment towards the end of the episode called The Hiking Hack. And that's where I'll turn to you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. So make sure you have something in store. I've got one all ready for you. Okay, don't use it too early. I've had guests that somehow it just popped out early and they they had to think of something else because you're still (laughs) going to be on the hook when we get there. Okay, I'll do my best to hang on to it. Okay. Trailblazers Toolkit. Let's get to our first segment, the Trailblazers Toolkit, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company, Six Moon Designs. Now, I love to talk about gear on the podcast. I love to hear about the most important item in my guest adventure gear. Glowstick, if you were preparing for your next adventure and I was the one providing you with all your gear, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? Give me all the specifics on that and tell me why you've got to have it out there. And this could be any kind of item. It could be gear. It could be apparel. It could be a luxury item, something else. So Glowstick, what is that item in your toolkit? 100%, this is my trekking poles. I have black diamond alpine carbon cork trekking poles. And I really feel that if I hadn't started using trekking poles, I would be dead like several times over. I feel like they've saved my life so many times. I'm not the most graceful hiker. I feel like by the end of the AT, I was like falling every single day and that was with trekking poles. So I just feel like by now I would have fallen off a cliff without them. (laughs) And I actually owned trekking poles for several years before the AT. My brother got them for me as a gift and I never used them. I took them on the AT because I was looking at other people's packing lists and everyone was bringing them. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll bring them because I have them. And now I never go anywhere without them. Let's talk about that a little bit. So they are literally a life-saving item in your your gear. Yes. (laughs) Not the most graceful. Say that again. Sorry. I said I mean that unironically. Unironically. Yeah. You're being literal. You're not being metaphorical. Yes. Yes. And what do you think, because you're not the only person to have maybe had trekking poles and not use them or have been offered trekking poles and have turned them down. What what do you think the reticence is of maybe first time hikers or new hikers 
to not use trekking poles. Why not use them? Well, I, I was a big hiker before the AT, but I, I was not, I've been backpacking a few times, but I was not a big backpacker. I was not a very experienced backpacker. And I just think that I didn't think that I needed them. I was like, you'd see older people most of the time using them on the trail. And so I was like, what would I need these for? I'm a runner. I'm in shape. I have no idea what I would even need these for. And once you put a backpack on, that's a lot more weight and it makes it a lot harder to be graceful and not trip over your own feet or rocks or roots. So I just think, especially with the added weight, they're a game changer. But I also think once you get used to using them, at least for me, then you really like being like a four-legged creature instead of a two-legged creature. And then you don't want to go back to being a two-legged creature. Yeah, let's go over some of the myths. What are some of the top myths associated with trekking poles? So I think you mentioned one, old people use them, right? They're for old people. False. They're not for old people. They're for, for everybody out there. They're for everyone. I agree with you now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't have a few years ago. And I also, I, I spent several months a while ago teaching English in Korea. And at the time when I was living in Korea, I assume it's still the same, but I, I'm not sure because I haven't been there in many years. But they were very big in Korea on always having the exact perfect attire for anything they were doing. Like if they went biking, they were all in the bike shorts, like the professional bike outfits. They went bowling. They were all wearing like bowling gloves. And when they went hiking, they'd all be using the trekking poles and like the big floppy hats. And so I also just thought it was a little bit of a joke. It was like, you're imitating a hiker with these hiking poles. But turns out, now I'm using them too. But I actually get stopped a lot and people will ask me like, what are you using those for? Like, why are you using those? What are they good for? Yeah. And so I always very enthusi- I very enthusiastically tell them all the benefits of hiking poles. Nice. Some of the other myths, I'm going to look weird using those. I don't want to look funny. I don't want to look different. And I think that is... Sometimes, sometimes if I'm going on a hike with someone new, like a new friend or something, it's my first time hiking with them, I'll warn them and I'll be like, just so you know, I'm going to be using these hiking poles. Sorry if you think that's embarrassing, but it is what it is. (laughs) That's right. And I think another popular myth about trekking poles is I'm young, I'm strong, I don't need them. For sure. And they're only beneficial. They're not going to hold you back. They're not going to detract from your hike. It's, it's an extra point of contact with the ground, life-saving in some situations. When you're crossing a river or a stream that's fast moving. It's another point of contact on the ground there. If you're crossing a log, it's you can use them to balance or to steady yourself. There's a lot of benefits to trekking poles. Yeah, I agree with you. And in snow, too. I feel like they give you a little extra balance in snow which obviously being in Colorado, that's a big thing. Yep, save your knee. I could talk about, I could talk about the benefits of trekking poles for hours. <laughs> we're not going to, just, just so you know, we're not going to. But the last thing I'll say is, is save your knees on the downhill, and it's almost like using handrails when you're going uphill. When you're pulling, you're using your arms to help pull yourself up. You also get more of a workout too. And for people who might be using hiking as a form of exercise for weight loss, you actually burn more calories hiking when you use trekking poles. There you go. I know everybody is concerned with calories these days, so that might be the the best point yet that we've made for some of our listeners. 
All right, next segment. Next segment. <laughs> it's the hiking pole. The hiking pole, and that's spelled with two L's, like a survey, not like what we were just talking about. This is a seven-question survey, Audrey, that's going to help me give you a score on the sanity scale, with one being completely insane and 100 being completely sane. And just so you know, uh, anybody who has done one of the American Long Trails, like uh, the Appalachian Trail, that's an automatic 25-point deduction. So your top possible score tonight is 75. Okay, I can't wait to find out my score. Okay, now you're a regular listener, so you, you've probably heard some of these questions. I'm going to have to change things up on you a little bit. Okay, fair is fair. Okay, so seven questions. This is not rapid fire. As you, I want you to give me your answer, and I also want you to explain it a little bit, why you chose that answer, because that'll help me with my scoring. Okay. Okay, here we go. Question number one. When you're out on the trail and you're with somebody else, what are your top three topics of conversation on the trail? Is this a new person or is this someone I already know? Who is your regular hiking buddy? Do you have one? I, I have a few regular hiking buddies. Yes. Okay. So let's say it's a regular hiking buddy. What are you guys okay. bantering back and forth about? I would say, what are the next upcoming trips? Not to say we're not uh, enjoying the moment of whatever trail that we happen to be on, but I feel like there's also always a, what's the next trail? What's the, what's the next ski trip? What permits do we have to put on our calendars? Okay. That's one. That's one. I would also say, what are we going to eat after this? Food seems to be a popular pop of popular, a popular topic on trail. And then I would also say I'm a pretty big nature nerd, so I like to know what's around me, like the plants, the animals. I'm always noticing that kind of stuff. One of my hiking buds is a mushroom expert, so whenever I'm with her, we're always looking for mushrooms, especially ones that you can eat. So, yeah, I'd say the third thing is what's in our surroundings, the flora, the fauna, the nature. Now, Glow Stick, I know that you're a festival junkie. And now I'm hearing that you have a friend who is a mushroom expert. Do we need to be concerned at all? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> How does one become a mushroom expert? Where does the, that drive come from? And what kind of studying do you need to do? Uh, that's a good question. So she used to be a microbiologist. And so she had access to a lot of equipment that you might need to also study mushrooms looking at pieces of mushrooms under microscopes to for sure figure out what they were so she and i her name is ibex we hiked the at together but we were college study abroad friends and we were i can't remember what her degree was in but we were both doing environmental science type stuff in college so she has that sort of background we actually met studying abroad in Madagascar, where we were living in tents at a research station in the rainforest for a semester. I'm not exactly sure about the mushroom expertise, but it all kind of ties in there. Madagascar, wow, you have been around. I have, yeah. Okay, we'll see if we work at some stories from Madagascar a little bit later. Question number two, when you've been out on the trail, I know you mentioned Ibex, but what is the best trail name you've encountered out there? I would have to say my friend, Edward Shitterhands. 
Sugar. Or Eddie for short. Shitter hands. Edward oh, Shitter hands. You know what? This is not the first time I've heard about Edward Shitter hands. I don't know. <laughs> so, that, that name sounds familiar. You don't forget a name like that. Somebody else has mentioned Eddie in the past. Yeah. So Eddie hiked the AT my year. And the first night on trail, she had to take like a middle of the night poo. And she didn't know it was going to happen. So she didn't dig a cat hole. And then she was like, oh, no, what do I do? I have to bury it. So she put some leaves and things on top and then patted it down and got poo all over her hands. And then she actually went back and told people about it, which I would take that to my grave. But uh, <laughs> we told people about it. And that is how she got her name. Wow. Wow. That is a story. It, it just it came upon her so suddenly. She had no chance. <laughs> yeah, apparently. My step cousin, I was on a hike with her out in Sequoia and something similar happened with her. It was like I was doing, I was actually interviewing her and her husband on the trail and for like on the trail episode for the podcast. And she said, excuse me, I'll be right back. And she ran away real fast and I'm watching <laughs> her run away. And of course, we're on top of a bunch of granite. There is like nowhere to hide. And it got really awkward. Oh, no. Yeah, it was it was very tough for her. All right. Luckily, luckily, that sort of thing hasn't happened to me yet. But I feel like you go off on enough trails and eventually it might. <laughs> yeah, stuff happens, right? As the saying goes. And speaking of that kind of uh, behavior on trail, question number three, toilet paper, bidet, leaves, snow or something else I'm not thinking of? Just the classic TP. I'm pretty basic in that regard. <laughs> okay. And do you pack your TP out? Well, it depends on where I am. I did not on the AT. I buried it, but like I was just on the John Muir Trail and you have to pack it out there. So say it depends on the environment. Okay. But I, I think it's all moving in the direction though of packing it all out. So. I think I think you're right. And do you have a strategy or a suggestion for maybe a best practice? for packing it out. How do you do that? So I wouldn't say I'm an expert and I'm definitely open to suggestions, but I have used dryer sheets to cut down on the smell. That was a tip that I found on YouTube before I went out on the John Muir trail. So I would say Ziploc bag with dryer sheets inside of a back an, a used backpacker meal bag. So lots of layers. In lots there. of layers. Yes. Yes. You Lots of insulation right there. Yeah, exactly. What I've done in the past, because I've been on the John Muir Trail, and I know that's their policy now, is I've taken a like a gallon storage bag. Is it a gallon? I think it's a gallon. Gallon storage bag, Ziploc bag, and I have coated the outside of it with duct tape, right? Peel off strips of oh. duct tape. So it's it, the bag is there. The duct tape is another layer, but it's also it also prevents me from seeing what's inside. Yeah, I like that. That was my idea with the, the backpacker meal bags, too, like the used backpacker meal bags. But I feel like duct tape, though, that wouldn't be very ultra light. It's an extra few ounces. But, you know, if you run into some problems out there, you need to fix something like a shoe or maybe your tent. <laughs> you just peel it off of the bag. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Question okay, number four. Well, consider that one for the future. <laughs> OK. Question number four. Breakfast in camp. On trail or no breakfast? In camp. I'm a huge coffee addict. 
I drink coffee every morning, even while on trail. I will get up. I hate, I'm not a morning person, so that's partly where the coffee addiction comes from. But I'll get up like a half hour early, earlier than everyone else, just to make sure I have time for my coffee. Okay. Now I'm looking at your background. I'm looking behind you now, and I see a teapot. I don't see a Keurig. I don't see a coffee pot. Do I? There's a coffee pot right there. There's a coffee pot. Okay. So my question is... I'm drinking tea right now, though. I'm a little sleep deprived. Okay. I've got a coffee pot as well. We used to have a Keurig, but we went back to to the, the coffee pot. I'm really enjoying the coffee pot. Is it possible to get the same quality coffee on the trail? Yes. Yes. So I've gotten really into the pour over coffees, which are definitely more expensive than the instant coffees. I've been into this brand lately called Copper Cow. It's Vietnamese style coffee. So it's it's pour over coffee and then it comes with, you can get what they call lattes, which comes with a little packet of sweetened condensed milk. So it's just it's delicious and i don't feel like i'm suffering i feel like after the at i drank so much instant coffee that i'm like i can never drink like the starbucks instant coffees i can never drink those again so i just i have a full-time job i spring for the fancier higher quality stuff that's right you need some luxury items occasionally copper cow lattes that almost sounds like a almost sounds like a hiking hack It's not. That's not my hiking. Okay. All right. (laughs) Question number five. When you're out there, do you prefer solo hiking or a tramley? So I like having a tramley to camp with. I get really bored camping by myself. Like I have been on solo backpacking trips and I, I can hike by myself all day. I love to hike alone. I do it all the time in my normal life. But when it comes to camping, I just think camping alone is so boring. Get tired of talking to yourself? Yeah, listen to the same things in my head all the time. And it's I listen to podcasts and music while on trail, so I don't want to do that when I get to camp. Like, I want to talk to people. Okay. Question number six. I want you to rank the following in your order of preference. Here we go. Three items. You tell me which is your favorite, which is your least favorite. One mile severe uphill, one mile severe downhill, or a 20-mile road walker. I shouldn't say or and a 20 mile roadwalk. How do you rank those? Okay, I'm gonna put my favorite as one mile severe uphill. Because like I I would rather have one mile of things being really tough than several miles of them being tough. And I feel like uphill is a lot nicer to my knees. I've been having some knee issues this year And I was just out on the Wonderland Trail, and there was a lot of steep ups and a lot of steep downs. And the steep downs are what were killing me. Yeah. Favorite steep uphill for a mile. I'll put number two, steep downhill for a mile. Because even if it's a suffer fest, it's only a mile. It's not going to be that long. It's going to be fine. And then a 20-mile road walk just sounds freaking miserable. So that's less. (laughs) Nicely done. Nicely done. All right. Question seven. Last question in the hiking poll. What's on your head out there? Ball cap, floppy hat, straw hat, sun hoodie, or no hat? How do the Koreans do it? Koreans use the big floppy hats. Yeah. Or at least they did when I was there many moons ago. 
But for me, I usually go with a baseball cap and sometimes a sun hoodie over the baseball cap. I never used to be a hat person. I brought a hat out on the AT. I never once wore it. Like the only times I used to wear a hat would be when I was playing tennis. But since moving west, where there's a lot more sun and a lot less tree cover, I've discovered that I really do need a hat. I, I tried the floppy hats. I like the idea of them for like more face coverage, but I don't like how the floppy hats will hit on the back of my backpack. So just for practical reasons, baseball cap, sometimes with a sun hoodie over it. And usually a headband too. I'm like, I have a lot of hair and it's unruly. So I often am wearing headbands as well, even in like normal everyday life. I like that unruly hair. You got a, you've got a hat, you got a headband, you got a sun hoodie. You're just trying to keep that mop of hair under control there. That's nice. It's it's right. extremely unruly. It gives me a lot of grief. Okay, hey, I, I need you to sit back now <laughs> because I'm I going to, to score your answers. It's going to require some math. I've got to uh, carry the three. I'm going to multiply by pi, divide by root five. And I have to adjust for the temperature of your copper cow latte. And I come up with a score of 61. 61 out of 100? 61 out of 100. Or 61 out of 75, that's, really. Oh, that's pretty good. I think so. It's one of our higher I, scores. I think my parents would be proud. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. I recently went to the doctor for my annual visit. And... I was telling my doctor that she's just like a very pleasant medical professional and doesn't make me anxious. And she was like, well, you're a very grounded, sane person. So you're easy to interact with. And I was like, I'm going to tell my parents. That's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. Now, I have to tell you that in the course of this interview, I've already, we've already heard about hiking. We've heard a reference to skiing. I've heard a reference now to tennis. You seem pretty athletic. Do you do a lot of activities like that? I do a lot of activities. I have a very hard time sitting still. I wouldn't say I'm athletic in the sense of I'm not particularly gifted in any of my endeavors, but I really enjoy being active and I'm out every single weekend doing something, whether it's hiking or skiing or backpacking or paddleboarding or some combination of all of those. I used to rock climb a lot. I haven't done that in a couple of years, but I used to do that really regularly too. I'm wanting to get back into yoga. I just, I'm not very good at sitting still. So I think I'm living in the right place for that. Yes, yes you are. And Glow Stick, I'm always on the lookout for a trail name for the episode. I'm always looking for maybe a turn of phrase, something funny, something interesting that comes up during the episode that I can name the episode. This will be, this will be the episode title. And a leading contender at this point is not particularly gifted. Audrey Glowstick Payne. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that might give people the wrong impression. <laughs> you said it, not me. You said it. Not, I'm not particularly gifted. It's true. I'm not particularly gifted in the athletic endeavors, but I do have a great time. You mentioned your parents as well. So if I named the episode that, I would feel bad that your parents would be, you'd tell them that you're on this podcast and they would say, where is it? And they'd find it and they'd see the title and they'd think, huh, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. I think they would probably get a good chuckle out of it. <laughs> 
All right. Hey, before we get too far down the trail, let's back up a little bit. Uh, tell us about your background, where you grew up, any siblings who are currently uh, enamored with the outdoors like you right now, and how did you get involved in the thru-hiking cult? Yeah, so I am originally from a very small town in western New York. I think the population is like 5,000, and I didn't even grow up in the town. I grew up in the country outside of the town. So I grew up not with a lot of money and in a place that's very outdoorsy. So my family and I did a ton of camping and hiking and biking and canoeing and tennis and all that sort of stuff. So I've always been very outdoorsy and into all the activities. My dad is very much like that. I have two brothers, Andy and Brian. I'm in the middle. And... I'm definitely the most outdoorsy and active, but my older brother, Andy, he also really likes hiking. He's been out backpacking with me before. He likes to hunt, but he's also raising two small children. So he definitely doesn't get out like I do. My younger brother, Brian, is more of a homebody. He loves movies and TV and indoor stuff, but I'll occasionally get him out for a hike. And he's a really sweet beagle named Shamrock, who I'm his favorite aunt. And he knows me as the aunt that as soon as I go home to visit and he sees me, he's he like leads me into the woods. My parents have woods right behind their house. I have a five mile hiking circuit. I can just go out their back door. And so I'll get home and Shamrock, he'll go to my parents for a doggy daycare every day. My brother's at work and I'll get there and he'll just start leading me to the woods. He's like, you're here. Come on, let's go. We're going hiking. That's right. Like, I took the outdoorsy aunt is home. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, the aunt that has to take me hiking every single day that she's here is here. So let's go. After the AT, I took him hiking almost every single day for three months while I was like job searching and trying to get back on my feet after my hike. And so he just got so used to like, okay, when you're here, that's what we do together. So. All right. Hey, let's let's talk about that. What do you do for a living? How do you pay the bills and finance your adventures? Yeah. So I am like a, a, we'll say a normal member of society. I do have a full-time job. I work for, I work in public relations for, a scientific research and data management organization that's at the University of Colorado. But I'm very lucky in that my job is pretty flexible. I get every other Friday off, so I can take long weekends every two weeks. I get a lot of vacation time. And I'm incredibly lucky that I have a really supportive boss who understands the importance of mental health. And like I run the social media and I'm like a kind of a forward facing person in the organization. He sees all the crazy stuff on social media and he's like, it's really great that you have your outdoor stuff to do to get out of this headspace. So he's like, keep doing that. And I support you in taking time off to do that. He let me take off a month last summer to go do the Colorado trail. I'm just very lucky at this particular job, which is why I haven't left to go do another long, long through hike yet. But in terms of funding my ventures, Boulder's pretty expensive. So I also have some side gigs that I do. 
in order to fund them. I'm a dog sitter on the side, which is like the best side gig ever. I also act as a representative for different like alcohol brands. Like I'll go to liquor stores and be like, hey, do you want to Try this or have this promo item if you get some of this particular alcohol. I make a little bit of money on social media. So all of those things combined, I'm able to both pay my rent and save for retirement and also go on all these trips. I have some follow-up comments and questions on all of that. <laughs> okay. Number one is we've got a new possible title for the episode, A, a Normal Member of Society. Audrey Glowstick Pain. What do you think? Is that, yeah. sli- is that slightly better? I think that's perfect. Yeah. A normal <laughs> member of society. I like that. That's nice. <laughs> now, you work for, is it a science company, you said? Yeah. So it's a scientific research and data management organization. Okay. Now, so you, you hang on. So <laughs> a sci- da- scientific data and research. What does the social media account for that company look like? Okay. Let me... I'll tell you a little bit about what we do. Sounds like a a real banger of a social media account. We have two arms, a scientific research arm. So our scientists are looking at the frozen parts of the planet are being affected by climate change. And then we have a data management arm. So a lot of organizations, especially government organizations like NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Department of Defense, they have satellites collecting data all of the time on different things all over the world. For example, how the heights of ice sheets are changing. And they also we'll have different programs to collect like on the ground research to compare it to the satellite data. And so those organizations, they're collecting so much data all of the time that they can't possibly store and manage and make all of it accessible all of the time. So they contract out to different organizations to help them do that. So my organization stores and manages and makes makes accessible some of that data, especially as it relates to the frozen parts of the planet. And so the social media is a combination of, oh, look at this new research about glaciers or sea ice, or hey, we have this new data product. If you're a scientist, you might wanna check this out. Or, oh, look, sea ice is really low. Maybe we should think about this. Yes, that's, so you're, the social media account is to inform scientists and also inform the general population about serious issues that are out there then. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Yeah. So we have a lot of different stakeholders. The social media is aimed at a bunch of different people like scientists, policymakers, journalists, educators, the general public. Now, I know that a lot of different companies have social media accounts and have their followers. I was just tickled a little bit that a scientific research and data management company had a, a social media person working for them. That that just it just struck me a little funny. That's good. It's not it's not the only thing I do there, but I do run the social media as well. Of course. And you dog sit and you're an alcohol rep. How does one become an alcohol rep? So when I was living in Washington, D.C., one of my jobs there was I was working in movie publicity and promotions. 
And I used to have, I used to run all of these different promotional events for movies like advanced screenings and things like that. And I had to hire reps to work at my events. And I became really good friends with one of the reps, my friend, Ari, and he is, he's like me. He just can't sit still. He's always doing a million things. And he is now working, he's a lawyer, but he's also working as a representative for these alcohol brands. And so he talked me into it, basically. He's like, oh, you're looking for more money to fund your adventures? Why don't you do this alcohol promotion thing? And so I was like, okay. And I applied and they didn't get back to me for a year. And by then I was like, what is this again? And he was like, no, it's so fun. You got to do it. So I started doing it and it is fun and it helps fund my trips. So nice. Nice. You're a go-getter. You're a hustler. You're finding ways to salt away that money and, and take your trips. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm unfortunately not independently wealthy. I got to find ways to <laughs> be able to fund all the million things I want to do. You did not win the birth lottery? Get born into a trust I, fund? I d- not in that regard. No, unfortunately. Yeah. You probably hit the jackpot being born into the family you were born into. The small town, the great family, a lot of positives there, but you don't have the the big bank account. Yeah, if only I could have my family be exactly the same, but with a bunch of money, that would be awesome. But I guess you can't have everything. Okay. (laughs) Hey, speaking of money, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from the advertisers, going to pay some bills. Not many bills, maybe a single bill with the advertising. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the big comeback that I alluded to in the intro and some of your adventures. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water, using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, 
Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Thru-hiker owned. Jolly Gear. Where fun meets functional. And welcome back. We're talking to Audrey Payne, a.k.a. Glowstick. A.K.A. I have a couple of other honorary titles for you tonight. A.K.A. not particularly gifted or also known as a normal member of society. So congratulations. Those are great trail names. They just take a long time to say. Oh, thank you. I did have another nickname on the AT. My, my name on the AT was Glowstick, but I did have another nickname, which was Tina Turner Legs or TTL for short. Because this this guy, this kind of redneck guy at Trent Grocery in Virginia, he stopped me and he was like, oh, you got the best legs I've seen all season. You got Tina Turner legs. And then he offered to buy me a popsicle. <laughs> Honestly, Glowstick, that sounds a little creepy. It was, it was but I, I had my family with me. They were looking out for me. And the guys of the tramway were like, do not take that popsicle. I was like, okay, geez. But they did get a kick out of calling me TTL for the rest of the trail. That, that was going to be my next question is, did you accept the popsicle? I did not accept the popsicle. Okay. How did, how did you let him down easy? <laughs> I think I think one of my tramway members, head chef, who was, he was protective. He was like a... Kind of a macho guy. I think he just stepped in front of me and was like, let's go get your grilled cheese. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to have friends. All right. now That's for sure. In the opening segment, in the the introduction, I introduced you as having this incredible comeback story. And I'd like to spend a little time talking about what that means. What happened to you? How did it happen? And how long did it take you to get over what happened? Yes, about 10 years ago, I went through a, an extremely difficult, horrible time in my life. I herniated a disc in my back during a group exercise at the gym. Just was bad luck and I think a bad instructor. And if you don't know what that means, so between your vertebrae, you have these kind of like sacks of jelly that cushion your vertebrae and help you move your spine, but they can bust open or they can move out of place. So you might've heard of like a slipped disc, that's when it moves out of place. 
for me, I had a herniated disc, so that means it busted open and all of the jelly came out and pushed on my nerves in my back. And so I ended up, I had an unstable spine because I was missing this disc, it had busted open. And I also had just horrendous back pain because I had this substance pushing on my nerves in my back. I just, it, it was really horrible and painful. I couldn't sit for more than 10 minutes at a time. Walking down the street was painful. Like the best way I can describe it is if you've ever had a tooth drilled into and you're not quite numb yet and you they hit a nerve and you get like the shock of the nerve pain in your teeth. It's like that in your back, but a hundred times worse. And some people get herniated discs and they don't even notice. And some people like me get them and it they're just in the wrong place or hitting on the wrong nerves and you end up with debilitating pain all of the time, all day long. I spent a year and a half on painkillers. Um, I had to build myself a standing desk at work. I used to have to ride the Metro every day because I was living in Washington, D.C. And it, it just getting to work was an incredibly painful experience. I had to give up most of the things I love doing. Like I said, I've always been really active and I could barely do any of that stuff. And I was 29 at the time. And turns out they don't like to operate on the spines of 29 year olds if they don't have to, especially because the insurance companies don't want to pay for it. I had to for a year and a half before I could get surgery to correct it. I had to try all these other things first, physical therapy, steroid injections in my back, a bunch of different drugs. And they just kept saying, maybe it'll correct itself. But a year and a half later, it, it just was getting worse. Finally, I got a spinal fusion. They took out the rest, rest of that disc and in its place, they put a cadaver bone and they stimulated my bones to grow into the cadaver bone. And I'm missing one of my discs and now I have a piece of a dead person's bone in my back instead. But when you, when your bones grow, break and grow scar tissue, they actually come out stronger than they were before. So hopefully that stays very strong and gives me no other issues. But it was like a year and a half going through it before I got the surgery and then they tell you, oh, you'll be better in three months after the surgery. And I didn't start to feel better for a year after the surgery. So I was like two and a half years of just horrendous debilitating pain where I couldn't even go out to dinner with my friends because it hurt too badly. I had to become much more of a homebody. And, but one good thing about this time in my life was that I was doing a ton of reading one of the activities I could do. <laughs> and during that time, I picked up a walk in the woods. And I had heard of a walk in the woods before. Like I had a former boss who had hiked the AT. I had worked in environmental education. So it wasn't a foreign concept to me, but, and I had seen the book on like many bookshelves in the past, never had an interest, but for some reason I picked it up while I was going through this spinal issue and read it and just fell in love with the idea of doing the AT. And I promised myself that if I was ever healthy enough to do it, I was going to do it. And you did. And so when I was, I did. So when I was healthy enough a few years later, 
I hiked the AT and it was the best experience of my life. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. We're going to get to your AT hike, but I do have some questions about what we just went through, what you went through that two and a half years. You talked about the the pain similar to uh, drilling into a tooth that's not completely numb and hitting a nerve. Has that happened to you often? You talk about that like you, you're familiar with that. Oh, God, yeah. So I <laughs> my nerves actually in my teeth like run a different way than most people's. And so I usually have to get like literally five shots of Novocaine if I have to get a cavity filled. <laughs> and whenever I get a new dentist, they are always like, okay, let's just check it after one shot. And then they start going, I'm like, oh, no, I can feel that whole thing. And then eventually the dentist will get used to me and then they'll know that, oh yeah, I have to give her like so much Novocaine, but whenever I get someone new, it takes a little convincing before they, they actually see it for themselves. Yeah, your trail name could have been Six Shots. <laughs> it could have been. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that you got the injury in the gym, and you had mentioned earlier that you you did yoga. Is this like the worst case yoga accident ever, or was this not yoga related? No, I actually started doing yoga as a result of my injury to strengthen my core, because it's better for your back if you have a strong core, and yoga is good for a strong core. But it, it was like a, it was just like a group exercise. What do they call those? Like pretty intense, like a boot camp class. But there were some weights involved. And so the actual exercise that did it was that I had like a weight bar and they had us like jump into a squat and then push the bar over our heads, which I, I've heard from doctors since the back injury that no one should ever be having you do that in a group exercise class and it's not safe. But I could, I could have guessed that myself with what happened, but. Yes. Hindsight is twenty twenty for sure. Yeah. But I had no idea at the time. I'd never even heard of the discs in your back and had no idea you could injure your spine like that. And yeah, unfortunately you had to learn the hard way. <laughs> Very unfortunately. Yes. Now, two and a half years in just agonizing pain, there are torture techniques that take a lot shorter than that. I can't imagine having to deal with that level of pain for two and a half years and coming out the other side of it. Yeah, I was really worried for quite a while that I wasn't going to come out the other side of it. And I I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of debate about painkillers and opiates in society today for for good reason. Actually, I have an uncle who passed away from from an opiate overdose, so I definitely understand. But I also think that a lot of people are saying, oh, we need to completely get rid of these drugs and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yo, hold up. I don't think you understand the level of pain that the human body is capable of. So let's take a pause and give that some thought. I wouldn't have been able to function without being on drugs for a lot of that time. I I just was in too much pain all the time. I wouldn't have been able to work. I wouldn't have been able to pay my bills. And were there any lasting effects from that use of opioids? Did you have any cravings? Did it lead you down a wrong path or how were you able to cope? No, and I got very lucky because 
addiction runs in my family and a lot of people end up addicted to opiates because of back injuries. So I feel like because of my family history and the fact that I did have a back injury, things could have gone very wrong for me, but I never really liked being on them. They didn't feel good to me. And I've heard there's a genetic component to that. It's the way you metabolize the drugs. But for me, like they gave me a stomach ache. They messed with my digestion. They made me feel out of it. They made me feel tired. So I was on them for the time that I needed to be on them. And then one day, I think six or nine months after my back surgery, I was like, okay, I'm going to see how I do off of these. I went off of them. I felt myself go through physical withdrawal for a couple of days. And then I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not taking them anymore. Like I've gone through that and I'm done. Yeah. Better to be addicted to festivals rather than opioids. And coffee. (laughs) That's right. And coffee. Copper cow lattes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Now they make movies about uh, people who have had things transplanted from other people into them. And then they get these visions or nightmares or weird experiences Anything like that with the cadaver bone in your back? Did you get any kind of uh, weird flashbacks or visions? Not as far as I remember, but my mom has always said that I have an evil twin because most of the time I'm a pretty good natured, fun person, but every now and again, I get a little bit of a temper. So now I just blame it on the cadaver bone. Okay. You've got an excuse now. That's right. Do you want (laughs) to, do you want to hear a bad parenting story? Yeah. Okay. So we have three kids and they're all pretty close in age. The older two are 18 months apart. And then there's like a two, two and a half year break between the uh, second and the third child. So we, they're all little, pretty little at one time all together. And it was like herding cats. It was, it was a lot. And at, at some point, I don't know what got into me, but I told them that they, they had better clean their rooms or behave, or they were going to turn out like their older brother, Homer. And they're like, uh-oh. Who's, who's Homer? Who's Homer? I said, yeah, he didn't listen. So we had to send him away. <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, no. It's a terrible story. And it's, then it's, your children were traumatized. For that's life. right. That's right. We laugh about it now, but I, I wonder how much damage that actually did when they were little. So when you're talking about an evil twin, uh, my, that just reminded me of Homer and what he's doing now. I don't know. My brother and I were arguing one time. I don't know how old I was, probably like a preteen or maybe early teen. So my brother and I were arguing in the car and my mom gets so pissed that she pulls over the car and she's like, I'm getting out. I'm not listening to this anymore. So she gets out and I start driving the car away. How old were you? So I think I was a preteen maybe. (laughs) And so I don't know. That was a questionable parenting move. I think. Did she come running after the car as it was moving? Yeah, of course. Yes. (laughs) You called her bluff is what you did. I did. Okay. (laughs) So you recovered. You got to a point where you're going to keep that promise that you had made after reading A Walk in the Woods. You were going to hike the AT. This is in 2018. What were you doing in 2018 before you left for the AT? I was working my dream job in D.C. I was working at World Wildlife Fund on their communications team which, so I lived in DC for about seven years. I went there for grad school and I went because I wanted to work at one of the big environmental conservation nonprofits. A bunch of them are based in DC and in New York. I 
never wanted to really live in New York. I thought it would be a lot for me. So I decided on DC instead with that very intentional purpose. And I had finally landed my dream job at World Wildlife Fund in 2016, worked there for a little over two years, and then was like, this might be crazy. I might be ruining my life, but I got to go. <laughs> the draw of the AT was that strong that you had landed your perfect job and yet you felt compelled that this is something you had to do. Yeah, I actually felt like at the time that I left DC, I had fixed a lot of things that had gone wrong. I had landed my dream job. I had, I always lived with roommates in DC because it's really expensive to live there. And for a couple of years, I'd had this really crazy roommate. She'd finally gotten out of the house and I loved all my other roommates. I was in a really good space with all my friends there. Like I, I just felt like everything was going so well finally. And then I was like, I gotta go, the AT's calling. And but I had known, though, that I didn't want to stay in D.C. forever. Like, I just found everyone there to be really work-obsessed. And in my jobs there, I'd been expected to be on call 24-7. And I just didn't want my life to be about work. And so that was also part of it. I wanted to have a life for myself where I was able to actually have a life outside of work. So that was also part of it. And I knew I... I didn't feel like I could do that in D.C., but also the call of the AT was just incredibly strong. What is before, before we get to the AT, what is the appropriate work-life balance? What is the appropriate work-life balance? I think that's different for everyone. I have friends who want to be working 12 hours a day, and on weekends, I don't want to be doing that. At my job now in Colorado, when I'm done with work, I'm done with work. I'm not checking emails. I'm not talking to journalists. I'm out on a hike or I'm out paddleboarding or I'm hanging out with friends. And then every single weekend I'm up in the mountains. I don't have cell service. Like at my job in DC, I remember I was out of cell service range one day. I was out hiking. It wasn't a work day. The office was closed and I got in trouble because I... Some journalist had sent me an email. I didn't answer it. And I was just like, it's my day off. I was hiking. But now it's no one would ever have that expectation. It's, oh, yeah, where in the mountains did you go this weekend? Now, what did your parents say when you left your dream job to hit the trail? Oh, they did not. They did not like that idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the black sheep in my family, whereas I've traveled the world and I studied abroad in college. And I feel like all these things that I've done throughout the years, my parents have always been like, this sounds like a bad idea. And then later they've been like, oh, that's really cool that you did that. So they really did not want me to quit my job in order to go hike the AT. I think they thought I was crazy. I think they thought I couldn't do it or I wouldn't like it. But then once I actually successfully did it and then was safely back into another job, they were like, wow, that's so cool. So now looking back five years later, any regrets on having made that decision? I have no regrets. I have no regrets. I will say I did really like that job. It, it lived up to expectations of working there. I really loved my coworkers. I loved the work I was doing. But like I said, I did not love the hours and the expectation. 
And I do think that it was time for me to move on. And I got to live out COVID in Boulder instead of DC. And I absolutely loved the AT. I still think about it five years later, every single day. I Some of my best friends I hiked with on the AT. I feel like I have friends for life from that. And it's just opened up my world too. Like I said, I used to do a lot of day hiking, but now I'm backpacking constantly and just getting to see these incredible parts of the country that I wouldn't have otherwise. So. Now, other than read, good. Other than read a walk in the woods, what other prep did you do leading up to your AT hike? Did you do any other kind of research? Yeah. So I used to really like this podcast that no longer exists, but it was called sounds of the trail. So they had correspondents out on different trails that would, you know, do podcast episodes from actually out there. So I used to listen to that a lot while I was walking to and from work. I also, I think this was pre-AT. I could be wrong. This might've been from after the AT, but I think it was pre-AT. I was also listening to the Mighty Blue on the Appalachian Trail podcast a lot, which I really liked. I, I would look at people's packing lists and I wasn't a YouTube person back then. So I wasn't watching YouTube videos or anything, which is funny because now I make YouTube videos, but yeah, I didn't do like a ton of prep. Honestly, I was also living in DC and I was walking a lot, but I wasn't walking with my backpack. First time I put my backpack on fully loaded was on my way to the airport. My cousins all tried it on and they were like, you're freaking crazy. Like you're supposed to hike with this thing on. I was like, yeah, I guess I'll figure it out when I get there. Okay. Now take us through what's going through your mind as you're doing the approach trail to Springer Mountain. What, what are you expecting oh for the next few months? I was dying. I was dying. I thought the approach trail was so hard. My bag was so heavy. I've gotten all new gear since then. But at that time, I had a huge Osprey Aura 65-liter backpack. And I just I didn't have a lot of money. So I had just used a lot of the gear that I already had, which was not ultra light. And so I had a 40 pound backpack and I was climbing the stairs of the approach trail and I couldn't use the trekking poles because there were holes in the depths. And my friend Ibex, she, she's just naturally really athletic. And we, like I said, she's my college friend. So we decided to do the trail together. And so she's like way ahead of me being like, this is a breeze. And I'm like sweating all over the place. And I'm like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? But I did it. And the next day was easier. And I made friends the very first night. And I was like, it's just going to be okay. Everyone says you get your trail legs in four to six weeks. So I just got to wait four to six weeks and then I'll feel better. Hey, you did two and a half years of pain. You can do a few months out on the trail. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Now, what are the logistics of your AT hike? When did you start? When did you finish? What was the total number of days? Yeah, so started on March 20th, finished on September 16th. This was in 2018. So I think it was like 180 or 181 days on trail, something like that. So very middle of the road. Okay. Now, looking back, what would Mount Katahdin glow stick whisper in the ear of Springer Mountain glow stick? Enjoy every second. Even the hard ones. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, there were hard moments on the AT for sure. But I just like Ibex and I both loved the AT so much that I feel like people very early on were like, oh, my God, how am I going to do 2,000 miles of more miles of this or 1,500 more miles of this? And you get to the halfway point and they're like, oh, I'm only halfway done. And the whole time we were like dreading that we were getting closer to Katahdin. We were like, oh, no, we only have 1,500 miles left. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I have a question for you, Glow Stick. Are you hiker trash? Oh, I'm, I'm definitely hiker trash. I, I clean up nicely in society, but I get out on the trail and it just, it's immediate. It all, it all comes out. I'm total hiker trash. Now, is there a defining hiker trash moment either on the AT or on a, a later trail where you're like, oh yeah, that, that uh, kind of defined me as hiker trash? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Let's see. At the end of the John Muir Trail, I was like, I knew I had to get on a plane and I wasn't going to have time to do laundry. So I paid my $5 for a shower in Yosemite and I took my hiking clothes in there desperately trying to like get them clean enough for me to wear them on the plane. But actually, Due to a series of unfortunate events, I ended up being able to do laundry, so it was fine. But I was like, I cannot, I just can't get on a plane smelling like this. I can't do it. So I was like, I'd rather have to wear these clothes like wet than have them smell the way that they do. That is a great hiker trash moment story. Nowhere, nowhere to be found. I can't do, don't have time, can't do the laundry. We're just do it all here in the shower all together. I was in there for an hour. It was great. <laughs> it's a lot of quarters. It was just that you just pay your $5, they give you a towel and you head on in. They don't time use. But I was definitely like, I feel like people are going to notice I've been in here for so darn long. Now you've been busy the last 12 months. I'm looking at your list here. You've, you did the TCT in 2023 and I'm assuming TCT, that's the Trans Catalina Trail. Yeah, and that one is your fault, actually. Is it? Tell me. Yeah, I was listening to your podcast early winter. I was dog-sitting one of my very favorite dogs who has since passed away, R.I.P. Claude, a really adorable St. Bernard. But anyway, I was dog-sitting him, and it was a winter day, and I, was, I just had turned on your podcast, and you started talking about the TCT, and I had never heard of it before. But I had actually, when I was younger, I applied for an environmental education job on Catalina Island. And the timing of it just didn't work out. I never ended up going. But I knew of Catalina Island that I'd always wanted to go. And I hadn't heard of the TCT. And you were talking about it on the podcast. And then that same day, YouTube, just like the algorithm, brought me a video about the TCT and then just randomly, like another podcast came on my phone about the TCT. And I was like, this is weird. Like, I've never heard of this trail. I've now heard about it three times in one day. And so the next day, I booked a trip to go do the TCT. I was like, it's a sign. I have to go. Nice. And what did you think of the TCT? I loved it. I loved it. I it was just a long weekend for me. Like I said, I get three-day weekends every other week. So it's just one of my three-day weekends. So it was a really quick trip. My friend Dory and I did it in just two nights. 
I thought it was really rugged. It's really tough trail, steep ups, steep downs. They don't believe in switchbacks, but pretty short, only 38.5 miles. And it was just spectacularly beautiful. And it was really fun. There were foxes everywhere. I saw several foxes. It was like a huge herd of bison from bringing them over from a Western back in like the 20s or 40s or something. It was really pretty. Like we were hearing because of all the rain that California got this year, it was exceptionally green and there were a lot more flowers than there normally would be. And the ocean views were incredible. We got woken up by a seal or a sea lion one day, but I only had time to hike and I'd like to go back sometime and do some snorkeling or diving. Like I really want to make it back to the island and do some water stuff. But I, I really liked the trail. Now, if you did it in just, you'd said two nights, right? You, you had two overnights? Did you yeah. camp? Did you camp at what, Little Harbor and Parsons? No, I wish. But because I had not heard of this trail before, I didn't, the campsites open up for the year on January 1st. And so this was like later in January or maybe February that I was booking it. So those campsites were already full. So I didn't get to stay at like the best campsites. So I stayed at Blackjack and Two Harbors. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, we've got an upcoming trip planned. It's a winter trip planned for the TCT. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I've done it a few times oh, in the summer. Haven't done it in the winter. So it should be it should be interesting. Cool. Have you done any of the water stuff out there? Other than sit on the, the beach and look at the ocean? No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be pretty into snorkeling and diving when I was younger and didn't have full-time jobs. I really like to get back into it. And I know that they have really cool kelp forests there. So that would be interesting to see. Nice. Now you also uh, did the JMT in 2023 as well. This was a high snow year. It was snowmageddon last winter. What were conditions like out on the JMT? And when did you go? Oh, it was, honestly, the JMT was brutal. And I know this may be an unpopular opinion because you used to be the John freaking mirror podcast, but I did not love the JMT. The JMT was not for me. Your score is going I, down. You're now in the fifties. Oh no. <laughs> oh shoot. I was doing so well, but it, it was really tough. Like the JMT is a lot of high elevation hiking, which is fine. I do that in Colorado, but it's like every day on the JMT, you go up a high pass, you climb all the way down the high pass. The next day, you go up another high pass, you come all the way down the high pass. And a lot of the passes, so I did the JMT in August, and I did it that late thinking that will give this snow time to melt. But a lot of the passes still, I was going northbound, and on the backsides of the passes still had a ton of snow with huge snow cups, and the trail hadn't been maintained. I imagine that's because with all the snow, they couldn't get equipment out there. But there were a lot of blowdowns and a lot of avalanche debris. You were always having to climb over stuff. There were bridges out. Some days you'd have to cross five to ten creeks and rivers, so you'd constantly be getting wet feet. I was getting a lot of blisters and it, it was very different from the Colorado trail, for example, is high elevation as well. But on the Colorado trail, 
you, you start a little lower and you gradually you go up and down some, but you generally, you get up high and you stay high. The JMT is not like that. You get up high and then you climb down low and then you get up high and then you climb down low. <laughs> and it was, it was really exposed as well. There was a lot of sun out there and I love, I love the sun. It's one of the reasons I moved to Colorado, but that it was too much for me. <laughs> And it actually made me doubt, like I've been thinking since I did the AT that I want to hike the PCT. And I had actually asked for a leave of absence from work to do it next year. And I'd been waiting on an answer. And I actually came back and I told my boss, I was like, I would actually like to postpone that to think more about my options because I'm just not sure at this point that the PCT is actually for me. Yeah, Audrey, the, the trail is the trail does not care if you want to get up high and stay high does not care if you don't if you if you want to go downhill it is what it is it the John Muir trail is a series of ups and downs and you really have to lean into that yeah and I just kept thinking while I was out there beginners do this trail so many people do this as their first through hike and I'm like who are these insane people who do this as their first through hike and then keep doing through hikes <laughs> That's right. Enjoyed it so much. They're going to keep on doing it. Now, it was funny. I was in like the JMT 2023 Facebook group and I'm still in it. And so after my hike, I was like, no, nah, that wasn't for me. I didn't really like it. And I'm watching all these people come off and post their photos and be like, that was the best experience of my life. And I'm like, what am I missing? <laughs> hey, Audrey, you know where we are right now? Where? Hiking Hacks. That's right. It's time for Hiking Hacks. Time for you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience better. Um, you know, I have to say that I feel like we have just scratched the surface with you. There is so much we did not talk about tonight. We did not talk about uh, the Colorado Trail. We didn't talk about the Art Loeb Trail. We didn't talk about the Wonderland Trail. We didn't talk about your uh, upcoming trip in Patagonia. I know that you are passionate about the outdoors and the environment and climate. We didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that either. But unfortunately, we have to keep moving forward. We have to wrap this one up. And I'd like to already ask you in advance to come on for another episode so we can continue the conversation. I'm sorry, you cut out there. Was that a yes? Oh, that was a yes. That was an I would love to. Okay, fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, hiking hack. What do you have for us? I know you had one at the beginning. Did you already share it early or do you still have it? No, I haven't shared it. And I feel like this is really appropriate to what we were just talking about, which is that, okay, if you are not used to hiking in high elevation, I would recommend giving yourself at least a day or two to acclimatize before you jump straight into it. So I'm thinking like, 10,000 feet or higher. So I'm in Colorado, so I do a lot of high elevation stuff. I've had a lot of visitors come from other states. And so I've witnessed a lot of people and experienced it myself, jumping straight into high elevation hiking. And I think if you give yourself a day or two to acclimatize, for example, if you were coming to do the Colorado Trail, I would recommend that you stay in the Denver area for a couple of days before jumping straight on the trail to get used to the elevation. And I've also noticed for myself and other people that usually my first couple of days at high elevation, like my stomach gets pretty off. 
It's unfortunately the reason I can no longer eat Backpackers Pantry Pad Thai. So I'd recommend for the first couple of days at high elevation, planning some meals that are a little blander. And also ginger is a really great natural remedy for nausea. So I really like when I remember to do it, getting those little ginger chew candies and bringing those along to suck on to take up the edge off what the elevation is doing to my stomach. So that is a great piece of advice. Fantastic. Now, did you have time to dig a cat hole for your pad thai? <laughs> it's, it's not really that kind of stomach issues for me. I just get really nauseated for a couple of days and I'll get it skiing sometimes too. Cause here in Colorado, it's the same thing. Some of these ski resorts, you go to the top and you're at 12,000 feet. And so my stomach gets all messed up and I just get really nauseated. So no, no cat hole needed, but okay. You know. All right. So there you have it. We are just about done here. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Audrey. We want to thank her for joining us this week. Glowstick, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Audie Payne. And I'm on YouTube at Audrey Adventures. Yes, that's another thing we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about your YouTube uh, channel and what we can find there. What, what can people expect to find on your YouTube channel? So I have all sorts of different types of videos on there, but lately I've been vlogging my hikes. So my JMT vlogging series is almost complete on there. I'm going to have my Wonderland Trail hike coming up. I think I have it scheduled for December. I also have some gear reviews and like I'll occasionally interview a through hiker. I have all kinds of different like hiking and backpacking tips. So a wide range of stuff. Okay. Remember to check out Hiker Trash Radio on social media as well. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you send it to me at hikertrashradio at gmail.com. Off the beaten path. Now, unfortunately, we can't always be on the trail. And when we're not, we need to find a way to get our adventure fixed. So, Glowstick, I'm going to ask you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This could be a book, movie, documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path. I know you've already mentioned A Walk in the Woods. Do you have another recommendation for us in terms of adventure media? Yes. So this is not like through hiker media, but it. I think it's in the same spirit of being interested in exploration. So I actually read this book because of an article I was working on for work. It's called In the Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. And it's a book about a failed expedition back in the late 1800s. This guy, George DeLong, was trying to be the first person to reach the North Pole. This was during like the age of exploration and no one had yet been to the North Pole. They weren't even for sure what was up there. Some people thought that it was covered in ice. Some people thought that it was an open ocean. Some people thought that it was a warm ocean. So he and his crew wanted to be the first to get up there and things ended up going sideways and many of them perished, but they really prioritized scientific research and data while they were on the expedition. So they learned a ton while they were out there. And even though many of the crew died, they were able to get all this information back to society. And it's just a really interesting account of that expedition and what exploration was like when you were trying to go to the North Pole back in the late 1800s. 
I love the Age of Exploration books. I love uh, hearing about those adventures back in the day. Uh, again, this was the this is in the Kingdom of Ice. You said, yes, in the Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. Okay, I'll check that one out. Thank you very much. Hey, I'm also going to give you a chance to win some points back, some points that I took away from you when you badmouthed the, okay. the JMT. Uh, the introductory segments, the little music and the voice that comes on, you're, if you're a true fan, you know who that person is. Do you know who that is? Oh, I don't know who that is. Oh, you had a chance to earn some bonus points. That's my daughter, Half Calf. Oh. Yeah, she was born in Southern California, raised in Southern California, but she try, likes to put on a little, what she thinks is an English accent. Now, I've talked to English people on the show before, and they've heard her voice, and they say, Doc, that's not English. I'm not sure what that is, but it's not English. <laughs> so she's got some work to do. She does have some work to do. Yes. Let's hear from her one more time. What have we not asked you? And before we wrap things up, just one more segment for you, Glow Stick, called What Have I Not Asked You That You're Dying to Tell Us About? What do we miss? I guess just what's next. So I'll just, you mentioned it, but next month I'm going down to Patagonia to hike the O Circuit and Torres del Paina. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> But doing the 78-mile circuit down in Patagonia in eight days, my friend Pika really wanted to go down there. I said, okay, let's do it. So that's what's next. Fantastic. I am so jealous. That's going to be an awesome trip. All right. I'm really excited. We are finished. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Glow Stick. We wish you the very best in Patagonia. And like I said, I want you to come back and share some stories from that as well as all the other stuff that we missed tonight. So as we close up, any shout outs to friends and family? Oh, sure. I'll just say hi to my family and my family, especially my parents, Penny and Jim. Okay, Penny and Jim. I want to thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if your cadaver bone is acting up and some redneck is offering you a popsicle. The trail is the trail. <laughs> Embrace the suck. Mm -hmm.